If you have a Bible with you, you can you turn with me to John chapter 11, verses 45 through 57. The passage is, for, is there um, for you in your bulletin as well. We're coming to the conclusion of this chapter where we have looked to Jesus' raising Lazarus from the dead. And, and in a sense, this passage is um, it's the epilogue. It tells us the, the response of the people, and quite frankly, it's a bit of a mixed bag. <laughs> Yet, what I hope we will see in this passage is the response Whatever that response was, it it was all according to the plan of God. As we prepare to look to this passage, let's pray, asking the Lord to to open our eyes that we might see his truth. Would you bow with me? Father, this is your word. Every bit of it breathed out by you, every bit of it true, every bit of it for our good, would you, would you give us eyes to see, ears to hear the glory of Jesus, our Savior. And as we see him, as we hear him, would you draw us into a deeper, truer, more lasting response? In Christ's name. Amen. This is the inerrant and infallible word of God. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim. And there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? And the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. This is the word of the Lord. shared with you, I think, that uh, a couple of weeks ago I was in St. Louis um, and I was meeting there in the middle of the country with uh, ministry leaders from all around uh, the country. There were, there were people from 
from Maine. There were people from Michigan. There were people from Washington State. And there were people from South Texas. We gathered there, again, in the middle of the country, in uh, weather that was in the mid to upper 80s. <laughs> I would go back to that. <laughs> Midway through the week, we had an outdoor uh, dinner, and, uh, and, and that night, those people who were coming from, from cooler climates, uh, for them, it was, it was rather balmy. They were, they were uncomfortable at what they thought was the heat. On the flip side of it, you had those from South Texas. For them, it was a welcome respite. They were enjoying the coolness of the evening air. But you see, here's the thing. Regardless of the response, for everyone, the temperature was 85 degrees. Have you ever noticed that there can be occasions when two different people, two different groups of people witness the same undeniable truth, the same undeniable fact, and yet respond in different ways? We respond to the same truth, the truth that we all agree upon, but we respond to that truth differently, oftentimes depending upon the particular lens through which we are interpreting that truth. And as we interpret that truth through a different lens, we respond in different ways. We do it with temperature, maybe depending upon what region of the country we come from, but we do it with matters of far greater importance. Verses 45 and 46 tell us about two different groups of people who respond to the same truths. Both groups saw the truth. Both groups believed the truth. It was not in doubt. But they responded very differently. Verse 45, the group of people who, who had come with Mary and they had seen what Jesus had done. What Jesus had done was to comfort and care for Mary and Martha and to raise Lazarus from the tomb by the power of his word. They saw. They saw his care. They saw his miracle and they believed in him. In. That little two-letter word might be the most important word in verse 45. It's preposition. It, it could be translated as into. You see, they had seen Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. There was no disputing the miracle. There was no disputing the fact they believed the truth of what had happened. They believed that Jesus did it, but the text does not tell us that they believed Jesus text tells us they believed in Jesus. They believed into Jesus. That two-letter word tells us something profound. That there was some form of, of transfer of trust. Some, some personal reality was changed in their belief. We'll talk more about this, this transfer, this believing into in a moment. But, but for now, I want to drive the point home by, by contrast. 
Because in verse 46, there was another group. There was another group who, who saw the same truth. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. They believed the fact of the miracle. But they did not believe into Jesus. Instead, they ran to the Pharisees. They ran to the Pharisees and told them, you've got to do something about this man or else. You see, they knew that Jesus had power. And they knew that Jesus would keep doing these signs. And so did the Pharisees. It was the same truth, but a different response because they were interpreting that truth through a very different lens. We all have a lens, a primary lens, a lens uh, by which we, we see and interpret the world around us and the lens through which we respond to those events. So what is yours? What is your primary lens? The group in verse 45 had a lens, and at minimum that lens was a lens of honest vulnerability. Maybe they saw the miracle and they connected the, the, the Old Testament prophecies and, and saw in this miracle worker the, the long-promised Redeemer. Maybe they saw the work and realized that Jesus was greater, that by virtue of his greatness he was worthy of worship, that he was worthy of some transfer of personal trust, that they could, they could place the Trust not on themselves and, and their work and their worth, but on, on this miracle worker, this, this redeemer. How about the group that ran to the Pharisees? And how about the Pharisees themselves? What was the lens that they were looking through? What was the lens that they were interpreting through? Well, importantly, it, it wasn't the lens of doubt. You see, they believed what Jesus had done. And they even believed that he would keep doing it. So they interpreted this miracle through the lens of self-preservation. There's no weakness in them, no vulnerability, no, no openness in them, only pride, jealousy, fear, rivalry. They believed Jesus could perform miracles, and they knew that if he kept doing it, then he would steal followers away from them. He would, get, he would draw a bigger crowd. He'd draw a bigger crowd to his party than they were. They also were afraid they'd lose their place of prominence. As we consider the different responses between these two different groups of people and the impact of their responses, I want to frame this discussion by thinking about two other, uh, two truths that we find in Scripture. Two truths that, that are woven together into a beautiful harmony throughout the Scripture. Two truths that we often pit against one another. Those two truths are the truths of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. God's sovereignty tells us this, that, that, that God has ordained the end from the beginning, that he is governing his creation to a glorious end, an end that he has claimed, 
that he has designed, and it is all for his glory. It's the truth of God's sovereignty that we find throughout Scripture. But there is another truth that we find throughout Scripture, and that is this, that man is responsible for his sin, for his actions, for his choices, and he will be judged accordingly. Now, oftentimes we, we think about those two truths and we want to pit them against one another. We want to lean towards one or the other because they don't fit together in our minds. But in Scripture, they fit beautifully, harmoniously. And those two truths are found in this text, both of them. Because we've got to see how those two truths fit together here and what they mean for our lives. Isaiah 55.11 tells us that the word of God will not return empty. It will not return void. The word of God will accomplish the purpose for which it was sent out. It will succeed in that purpose. Well, in John chapter 11, the word of truth is Jesus. We've seen in John 11 that Jesus describes himself as the resurrection of life. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. And then we've seen this truth played out in the works of Jesus as he would raise Lazarus from the dead. It's the truth of God displayed in and by Jesus. And that truth, that word, did not return void. It accomplished the purpose for which it was sent out. For some, it drew them in. And yet for some, it hardened. It hardened in the self-desire and self-preservation. We need to consider those implications for ourselves, and we'll do so in just a moment. But for now, let's continue to look at this scene. We... We see in this text how, how God is accomplishing his word, but let's also see that he is proclaiming the gospel, and he's doing so sovereignly. This week, we were talking about this text as we were planning for worship, just as we do every week, and as we're talking about it, Michael made a comment. He said, you know, God is good at irony, and this text is dripping with irony. The Pharisees, they were fretting over losing their place and their nation. Their place being the temple, their nation being Israel. First installment of irony we see in this is they actually considered the nation and the place theirs. <laughs> Not God's. But there was a deeper irony. In the meaning of Caiaphas's words, we read them in verses 49 and 50. Caiaphas, John would later tell us, was the high, or he told us here and would remind us that he was a high priest that year. Verses 49 and 50, Caiaphas responded with this, with this sort of tone of disdain over those who would even speak of Jesus. And he said, you know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. What was Caiaphas meaning by those words? Well, Caiaphas wanted to preserve the status quo. And he defined that status in terms of his own status. His status of religious prominence 
among the Jews. He was concerned on two fronts. First, he was concerned that Jesus would become more popular than him, that he would steal followers away. But, but also he was concerned that this, these upstart Jesus freaks might, might draw too much attention among the Romans, that the Romans might come and, and squash all religion. And if they did that, they would squash their, their place of leadership in society. So cynically... Caiaphas spoke of Jesus' death as a way to preserve the nation. In his mind, his nation. And the religious leader's place of prominence in that nation. But again, God is good at irony. Caiaphas had one particular meaning, but God had a deeper meaning. Verse 50, Caiaphas' emphasis was on death on die. God's emphasis was for the people. Caiaphas spoke of Jesus basically in terms of throwing Jesus out as a political scapegoat. We'll, we'll sacrifice him. Big deal. He's just a rebel rouser anyway. We'll sacrifice him. It'll silence the critics. We won't have to worry about the Romans. We'll keep them at bay. But prophetically, as John in his narrative tells us, Prophetically, as the high priest, and unwittingly, he speaks of the substitutionary atonement. And by substitutionary atonement, this is what I mean. He's pointing to Jesus as the Lamb of God, the substitute Lamb, the one who would take the punishment for the people, for the children of God, the substitute Lamb who would die in, in our place. Caiaphas didn't understand his own meaning. But God sovereignly spoke through him to proclaim the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. But the irony continues. Because you see in verse 50, Caiaphas spoke of the people. When he spoke of the people, he was, in his mind, speaking of racial ethnic Israel. He's thinking of the Jews, the particularly religious Jews. And yet, John's narrative explains that this proclamation wasn't for the nation only, but for those scattered abroad, for the Gentiles. And John, in his narrative, tells us that these chosen Jews and these chosen Gentiles, they're, they're children of God. That what Caiaphas thought of as his people, God is saying, my people. God is speaking the gospel through an enemy, looking to a time when he would gather to himself his beloved children through the death of his beloved son, who would die in their place. The high priest is speaking of the gospel going out to the nations gospel that it goes out to us, a gospel that we receive by faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, who died in our place. As all of this is taking place in this scene, the religious leaders interpreting all of this truth through their own lens, they're hardening, their hearts are hardening, their face 
is set. And we see here in the text that from a human perspective, the path for Jesus to the cross was fixed. But understand that God is working through human means to accomplish his divine purpose. We talked about it, sovereignty and responsibility. They don't fit together in our minds, but beautifully in the scripture, they fit together for our good later. In the book of Acts, chapter 2, the apostle Peter would preach at Pentecost, most likely preaching to some of the people who were there in the crowd this day. And he spoke of their putting Jesus to death, but he did so in this way. In Acts, chapter 2, verse 23, he said, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Did you hear it? Man's responsibility and God's sovereignty, God's grace. God is accomplishing his purposes in this text. God is accomplishing his purposes in our lives. And though some were hardened, he's calling us to respond. So, how? How will we respond and Just as importantly, when will we respond? Because the text is speaking to the need for that response, and the text is also speaking to the timeliness of that response. Verse 53 says that there came a time when the religious leaders were resolved in this plan. The hardening was set. The path was fixed. The next verse tells us, in response, Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness in a town called Ephraim. And there he stayed with his disciples. There's a point of transition in the public ministry of Jesus. Up until this point, his public ministry has largely been among the Jews, calling the nation of Israel to, to faith and repentance. But here, as the path is set, there is this transition, there is this turning point. And in that turning point, it is as if the window of opportunity is closing for those who would trust instead in their own religious performance. Matthew, Mark, and Luke in their gospel accounts would spend the majority of the Passion Week narrative speaking of Jesus' ministry around the temple, but in John's account, when he transitions after the triumphal entry, a text that we'll come to in two weeks, John spends the overwhelming majority of the rest of his gospel accounts speaking to Jesus' ministry to the disciples. Because Jesus is turning his focus to care for them, preparing them for his death, and therefore preparing them to take this message of the gospel out to the nations and establish the church, a church and a ministry that you and I here today are benefiting from. Their face was set, their hearts were hardened, and Jesus turned in another direction. Have you ever been around when concrete was being poured? Have you ever poured concrete yourself? You start with uh, an aggregate mixture. You pour in a little water to make it pliable, to make it movable. It, it becomes this soupy substance that is 
movable enough to allow you to work it, to spread it, to cover what you're trying to, to cover. But over time, as you work that concrete, it, it thickens. It hardens. Over time, you can't move it as easily. You have a window of opportunity to work with it. But as it hardens, that window closes until finally the concrete's set. And wherever it's set, it's set. There's a sense in which in this text, the concrete on their heart is setting. And Jesus has turned to another group. He's turned to the Gentiles. Scripture warns us of the same thing. Scripture warns us of of hardening hearts and the timeliness of our response. In Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 through 15, the Word of God says this, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Hardened resistance takes many forms. For the religious leaders there in Jerusalem, it took the form of self-importance and self-righteousness. They saw Jesus' power, but they had no awareness of their own personal need. And so they lashed out at him with, with no denial of his power. Their hearts were hardened, and Jesus turned towards the Gentiles. Maybe some of us here are deceived by the same self-righteous, self-focused, self-important desires. Maybe. And if that is you, this word is for you to turn. But for others, the hardening takes a more subtle form and takes the form of a lukewarm response. It takes the form of holding Jesus at bay, treating him akin to a casual acquaintance. Some of us, for some of us, the hardening is subtle. Because we might know about Jesus, but there has been no transfer of personal trust. Over time, we're keeping Jesus at bay, and it has the same impact that it had on the religious leaders in that day. If this is you, I'm going to call you to respond. To respond to this Jesus with a response of need, invited by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. As we have been saying, there are two truths in the word. God calls us to respond, but God is also sovereign over all. And that tells us the beautiful truth of grace. That that response that he is calling us to is a response that he enables in our hearts. And so praise the Lord, many here have already responded and if that is you praise the lord your call is to persist it is to persist in grace 
You are graciously called to a responsive life of being shaped by the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. To persist in Him by allowing Him to continue shaping your life, your loves, your desires. Rather than trying to fit Him into your own personal narrative. Some of us hear that and and we run that through what has become a cultural sacrament of rededicating my life to Jesus. And I want to be careful in how this comes across. But, but for some of us, we've, we've thought about this, this ongoing series of walking away from Jesus and rededicating ourselves to Jesus. But that, that displays a particular uh, view of relationship with Jesus that is all dependent upon me. God is calling to himself his children. And when he speaks of his children, he speaks of his acceptance of those children. We talked about the lens through which we interpret Jesus' power, the lens through which we interpret the gospel. There must be a sort of bifocal lens. It's the lens of need and the lens of acceptance. And when we look to Jesus through the bifocal lens of need and acceptance, the impact is not this back and forth of walking away and rededication, but instead a continual life of repentance. It is repentance unto life. In other words, it is a dailiness. A dailiness of dying to self. A dailiness of remaining in Christ. A dailiness of need. A dailiness of grace. That is the call to a lifestyle of response that I believe Jesus is calling us to, those of us who have, who have turned to Him in faith and repentance, that we remain there, that we remain in faith and repentance. Oftentimes we speak of receiving Jesus as if we are receiving Him into our circle. We receive Him into our life, into our plans. No. To believe in Him is to receive Him, but it is to receive not Him into our plans, but to receive His salvation. It is to receive His identity as my new life, as my new identity, as my abiding reality, to receive Jesus, to receive His salvation, and it is to jump into His arms, and so do so today. Friends, as we Consider a text where Jesus' path to the cross is said. As we consider our response in light of that path. Please hear it in the context of invitation. Please hear it in the context of grace. And let us be a people who jump. And let us be a people who stay. All praise be to God. Let us pray. Father, your wisdom is greater than ours. Your sovereignty is powerful and beautiful and gracious. And yet you call us to respond. And so give us hearts to do so. And give us hearts to remain, to abide in Christ. It's in his name we pray.